Good morning, Kent Cuff. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Pastor Corey. I'm one of the pastors here at Kent Covenant Church. We are glad to have you with us, whether you are here with us in the room or online. Um, this morning, we're going to be looking again at the Gospel of Luke, and our text is from chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 9. So Luke 13, 1 through 9. Luke writes, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? <clears throat> I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. <coughs> Excuse me. So he said, to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Please join me in prayer. Bless us this day, O Lord, with vision. May this place be a sacred place, a telling space, where heaven and earth meet. Amen. One of the favorite movies in the John's Rood Movie Hall of Fame, at least, I, well, I can't speak for our children, I can speak for Gretchen and I, is a movie that we discovered when we were in seminary many years ago. It's a, it's a classic film, very deep very uh, uh, filled with, with a passion and emotion. It's a, it's a movie called So I Married an Axe Murderer uh, with Mike Myers. Um, if you're not a Mike Myers fine, just, fan, just stick with me for a few minutes. This is all going to make sense, I promise. Anyways, in this movie, Mike Myers plays a young man who uh, has a bit of some commitment phobia. He doesn't want to get married. He's afraid of commitment. But he comes from this Scottish family, and his Scottish parents uh, are these two colorful uh, people who uh, seem like they're in a time warp. But anyways, there's a scene where Mike goes to his parents' house with a friend to watch the soccer match. And his mom begins telling him about all the news that was in the paper. Now, the paper is the weekly world news. And it's filled with facts like the Garth Brooks juice diet and the uh, Mrs. X, the honeymoon murderer, right? And she goes on and on talking about these facts and these stories that are in the paper. And it's this, and he's saying, Mom, how can you call this news? And she's like, well, this paper has the eighth largest circulation in the world. And she's just convinced that everything that's in this paper is news. Now, I know this seems far-fetched to us in this modern age, that we would be, 
you know, we would have news that's just sensational and, and filled with all kinds of nonsense. But it was a movie. But there's something here that shows, and I think part of the reason that that's funny, or at least it's funny to me, is that we as human beings have a penchant, uh, some kind of weird attraction to the sensational, to the out of the ordinary, to anything that makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves. And I think the reason that I thought of this is as we look at our text from this week, it strikes me that this is one of those places in Scripture that is just a bit of a head-scratcher, right? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. All the texts as we journey through Luke from now until Easter are Jesus um, you know, a few chapters ago it says Jesus set his face for Jerusalem. He's on his way, right? But the text here starts in just this very strange way where it says, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And it's kind of like, whoa, what's going on here? And what makes it even more perplexing is that if you uh, do a little digging and you try to confirm a lot of the stories that we know from the Gospels and events, we can, um, you know, kind of line up with other uh, historians, ancient historians of the time. Neither this event nor the, this tower collapsing in Siloam are recorded in any other of the ancient historians that we're aware of. These are the only places we hear about it. Now, that might seem problematic, but it's really not because uh, what that tells us is that Pilate, the governor of the area, um, is indeed or was indeed as violent and capricious and just kind of uh, nasty as history tells us. And so what that tells us is that it wouldn't have been out of character for him at all for this to happen. And so uh, most scholars don't doubt that this was, these were actual events. But what's interesting about it is that somehow it seems like the people who are bringing this to Jesus are doing so in such a way that it sets them up as, see how bad these, these people were. Didn't they deserve what they got? And Jesus does this thing that, um, and, he's, and his response is, do you think they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered this way, I tell you, no, uh, we're all going to die, repent. So Jesus, in other words, becomes the warm, fuzzy pastor we all want him to be and, and, and confirms our beliefs about the world. But that's not what he does, right? He says um, that they were all, that they weren't any worse than anybody else. And the people who were crushed by this tower that fell, they weren't any, any worse than anybody else. So what, this, what strikes me about this is we have this strange desire or attraction as humans to want people, um, when bad things happen, we want a reason, right? That they did something to deserve it or that somehow uh, they were guilty of something. We see this also in the Gospel of John in the story of the man born blind. They come to Jesus and say, uh, teacher, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus' response is essentially the same. Neither. That's not the way it works. And so, um, so we have this story where 
this very strange, you know, they're coming to him with this very strange thing. And his response is not to confirm their bias. His response is to call them to repentance. To say, no, you need to reconsider your, your understanding of the world. Because that's not how it works. And then, uh, and then he tells this strange story about the fig tree. And I think where this ties together is exactly in that space. Jesus is turning things once again around so that we have to face some of those preconceived ideas that we have, these biases that we have in the way we view the world. And so Jesus, in response to them coming with these kind of sensationalized news stories, first calls them to repentance, and then he drops this random parable on them. Then he told this parable, a man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not then cut it down. Now there's a lot of places we could go as we look at this parable. One of the temptations that we have with parables is to read them and want to assign to every item in the parable some allegorical meaning so that the fig tree uh, for many is Israel or the church or, and the soil is this and, the, that, you know, and set up these correlations. And I think sometimes that's helpful, but sometimes what that does is just allow us to shift our focus so we don't have to consider what's happening. What strikes me about this parable is not so much the symbolism, uh, which is rich. Again, you've got a vineyard, you've got a fig tree, you've got all these Old Testament allusions that could be uh, referring to the nation of, or the people of Israel. But they also are referring to us and to the individuals who hear the story. You've got these details like the man comes for three years looking for fruit and doesn't find any. Now, the little bit of uh, reading I did about fig trees and, and in the uh, commentaries, it suggests that it's, it wouldn't be unusual for a, for a fig tree to not give fruit every year. It's not, you know, like a mature apple tree that, you know, that apples always come, right? It's, it, it wouldn't be unusual that it didn't give fruit. It's unusual that it goes for that long. Um, but I think what is most fascinating about this parable to me are there are a couple of words in this parable that are actually foreshadowing to the passion of Christ. And uh, they are uh, the phrase, cut it down, and the phrase, uh, the vineyard uh, manager's response, leave it alone. And the reason that these, wor these words are foreshadowing are, um, are interesting. The first, that cut it down phrase is used, it's the same root that's used uh, in the call when Jesus is in Jerusalem on trial and the, and the crowd starts to chant, crucify him. Same Greek root. Interesting. Cut it down. 
And then the vineyard uh, manager's response, leave it alone. Leave it alone for one more year. And so what it sets up is this uh, impending uh, recognition of impending judgment, but then a, a period of time where we have the opportunity or the, the tree has the opportunity to repent, to, to change its ways, to give fruit. So as we think about that response, sir, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Some thoughts about manure. The, the vineyard manager says to the owner that he's going to, to give him, asks him to give him a chance to, to till up the soil around the roots of this fig tree and to fertilize it. Well, what's he going to fertilize it with? Well, he's going to fertilize it with manure. Um, and it struck me as I was thinking about this that in some sense, Manure is an organic parable. Manure is an organic parable. It is dead material that is filled with life. I don't know if uh, any of you have seen, there's a documentary that came out a couple years ago called, um, uh, the name just escaped me, The Little Farm. It's about this farm down in LA, and, and part of the whole story is this couple buys this farm, but and then after they buy it, they find out that they don't have soil, they have dirt. So the difference between dirt and soil is dirt is dead. Nothing's going to grow in it. It doesn't have what, what you need to grow plants. Soil is alive. And how does soil get alive? Soil gets alive from all the microbi microbiomes, enzymes, and, and microorganisms that exist when you mix dirt and manure and it becomes a living thing, which is soil. And so the, the vineyard manager says to the owner, let's, you know, let's till this up and put some manure in there and, and bring some life to the roots of this fig tree. And so there, that's one interesting image. The other image that strikes me about manure is that it's not a quick fix. And this for us is an important lesson, I think, because I think for us and I don't know if it's a distinctly American thing or if it's just part of the human condition, or, but we love a quick fix. That tree is there to produce, and it better produce, and if it doesn't produce, we're going to cut it down and get rid of it. Sir, just give it a year. Let me do some work. Let's till it up. Let's, let's fertilize it and give it some time. It's not a quick fix. It takes time for that manure to get in there to that dirt and turn it into soil. Right? And so there's this image of, of that work of resurrection that happens in the dirt. It takes time. Things have to change and grow and come to life. The second is that phrase, leave it alone. Leave it alone. So I was doing some reading, and Eugene Peterson, in his uh, book, called Tell It Slant, says this about that phrase. We already talked about the first phrase, that cut it down phrase that uh, echoes the crucify him call at, during Passion Week. But Peterson writes that Jesus' prayer to his father on the cross 
forgive them is a verbatim repetition of the gardener's intervention, let it alone. The Greek word is aphis. In some contexts, it means hands off, cool it, leave it alone. In other contexts, having to do with sin and guilt, it means forgive, remit. It is the word used in the prayer that Jesus taught us, forgive us our sins. Here, the context of the parable and the prayer converge. The violence intended for the fig tree is deflected by the gardener's let it alone. The violence visited on Jesus is countered by, Father, forgive them. Then he goes on to say, For those of us who are up to our necks in manure, which is to say, up to our necks in forgiveness, it is perhaps important to note that the forgiveness Jesus prayed for us was not preceded by any confession or acknowledgement of wrongdoing by the crucifixion crowd or any of us since. Preemptive forgiveness. Jesus prays that we be forgiven before we have any idea that we need it. Jesus prays that we be forgiven before we have any idea that we even need it, for they know not what they do. No preconditions, amazing grace. Friends, what strikes me about this part of the parable, this call forward to Jesus calling out on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Leave it alone. Give it a year. Fertilize it. See if it bears fruit. It strikes me that for those of us who are seeking to live life in the way of Jesus, that part of the call of Jesus to repentance is a call to a life of ever-flowing forgiveness. Now notice that this is not forgiveness that is easily given. I can't imagine that Jesus calling out forgiveness in the midst of the horror of crucifixion was an easy forgiveness. But it was undeserved. It was not earned. It was not asked for. There was no confession on the part of us or those doing it to uh, bring about that forgiveness. And so as we seek to follow in the way of Jesus, we must learn and ask God to help us to live in that same way, to leave it alone, forgive, share grace for others most certainly, because in Jesus, when Jesus teaches us to pray, he teaches us to pray to forgive others as we ourselves have been forgiven. But notice how that works. We can't, I would suggest, forgive others until we accept God's forgiveness of ourselves. And I think sometimes we, um, it would be easy for me to tell you to go out and forgive people even though they don't deserve it, which is exactly what we should do. But unless we recognize that part of the reason oftentimes that we can't uh, do that, that we don't live into that part of Jesus' call, is because we have not allowed ourselves to accept the acceptance of God in Christ. 
There's something in our lives that has blocked us from recognizing that we are forgiven. That we were covered in that Father. Forgive them for they know not what they do. It does not matter what you've done. It does not matter where you come from. It does not matter uh, how broken you are. It does not matter that you can't stop doing that one thing that you know you shouldn't do. It doesn't matter. God's love is for you. God's forgiveness is for you. And until you can accept that forgiveness, you will not be able to pass that forgiveness on to others. And so friends, it's my prayer and my hope for you that as we continue this Lenten journey of repentance, that part of that repentance would be changing your thinking about the way that God sees you and allowing yourself to accept his forgiveness of you, no matter who you are, no matter where you, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done. He forgives you. It is for you, and it is for you to share with others. Amen.